The Bain Free Radio Hour. On the podcast, storytelling on an epic scale, a misfit crew, a world to save from the zombie rage, and the most dangerous weapon is a past scorn. Plus, an ancient evil haunts the land, and we continue our ongoing audiobook serialization of John Ringo's Live Free or Die, all right now. Welcome to the Bain Free Radio Hour. It is a pleasure to have you along. I am Bain Associate Editor and your podcast host, David Afshirad. This week, Griffin Barber talks with Sharon Lee and Steve Miller about their new collection, Eliaden Universe Constellation, Volume 5. This is, as you may have guessed, the fifth volume of short fiction, novellas, and miscellaneous Eliaden Universe writing collected in one handy volume. It's out now in trade paperback and ebook. Longtime fans will, of course, enjoy exploring these adventures set in the groundbreaking space opera series, but new readers will also find much to like. But first, the news. The March mass market paperbacks are roaring into bookseller shelves like a lion. Let's take a look. First up is At the End of the Journey by Charles E. Gannon. Six mismatched teenagers and their crusty British captain were out at sea when the world ended. Now they must step up to leadership or face disaster. They must seek others who are fortunate enough or tough enough to have made it through the apocalypse. If they can, then maybe, just maybe, the plague won't be the end of humanity's journey after all. Next up, we have Blood and Whispers by A.C. Haskins. Thomas Quinn is a sorcerer haunted by the memories of the things he's done over centuries of service to the Arcanum. He has long retired from that life, running an occult shop in Philadelphia for the past several decades. But when two detectives come to his door asking about a brutal ritual murder in his city, Quinn must reluctantly take up the mantle of a sorcerer of the Arcanum once more. And finally, The Jupiter Knife by D.J. Butler and Aaron Michael Ritchie, the second book in the Cunning Man series. A dark and ancient conspiracy is afoot in a small town set amid endless hills of warped and twisted sandstone. Local law enforcement seems powerless to stop a murderous magic from claiming victim after victim. Unraveling the plot will require a man of skill, a man equally at ease with magic and reason, a good man, a man of humility, but also a cunning man. Do you prefer your books electronically? Do you like discounts? Well, head on over to Bain.com for our February Before Honor ebook sale. Honor Harrington may be the best military strategist in the Star Kingdom of Manticore, but she is also the heir to a noble legacy. This month, we're celebrating the tales in David Weber's landmark Honorverse that take place before Honor comes on the scene in On Basilisk Station. For the month of February, get $1 off previous entries in the Manticore Ascendant series, as well as the Young Adult Star Kingdom series featuring Honor's ancestor, Stephanie Harrington. The sale runs through February 28th, 
and these discounts are good wherever Bain ebooks are sold. And that's it for the news. And now Griffin Barber talks with Sharon Lee and Steve Miller about Eliadin Universe Constellation Volume 5. Hi there, I'm Griffin Barber, your host for today's edition of the Bain Free Radio Hour. Sharon Lee and Steve Miller have been one of the most prolific writing teams of any era, furnishing 23 novels and a number of short stories, novellas, and short novels containing additional content for fans of the Leaden universe over the past 30 plus years. Both have written other well-received works independent of their shared universe, but one gets the impression that the Leaden universe is something of a joyful obsession for both authors. This is manifestly a good thing for fans, as we are here to discuss a Leaden Universe Constellation, Volume 5, forthcoming from Bain Books. Hello and welcome, Sharon and Steve. Hi, Griffin. Hello. So, a couple of hard questions first. Uh, the hardest, I think, uh, for me anyway, when I'm talking about my things, is what is the coolest thing about the Leaden Universe for each of you? Well, um, as Steve and I were talking about this morning, cool changes. We've been doing this for a really long time. And the first cool thing was that we were going to go against this. We're going back to the 80s, the 1980s, way back. Um, we were going to have characters that had, in a science fiction book, um, relationships and ongoing commitments which um, we got kind of tired of, or at least I was kind of tired of the um, sci-fi hero who went it alone, you know. And um, so that started out being a very cool thing. Um, but as you move on, other, other things get cool or they get cooler. The characters are still a joy um, and the tree <laughs> is still a joy. Um, but what's really cool about the universe is, is, is the universe keeps opening up. The further we go in, it's not constraining us. It's letting us go wider. And I, I think that the fact is, is that we started off uh, with, we started off with the, uh, the help in effect of, uh, say, Roger Zelazny. Mm -hmm. because I, I knew Roger, uh, he was a, a friend of mine, and he had sold seven books at once when he sold the, the initial, uh, the initial um, series for Amber. And we were interested in the idea of being able to go at pace and not have to get everything done in one place. And then we took it that next step. We went from white, wanting to write a series to wanting to write in a universe. Which would allow us to uh, allow us to do side things and stuff, and we we saw that pretty early. Uh, partly that too was probably from we uh, knew Anne McCaffrey and her writing, and she was doing a little bit of that that kind of thing, because otherwise at that point most stories were written, most science fiction novels were standalones, and it was very rare to get a trilogy. And here we were positing when we started off that we were going to write at least seven or eight books and that they would be all in the universe, but they wouldn't necessarily be presented serially. So we were able to work with that from the beginning, uh, which meant we didn't have to shove everything into this story right, right now. Not all the world building had to go at one at one go. Huh? 
Oh, we can discover it as we go along, and we're, we're still discovering things. And that's, uh, is it uh, three million words, or, or did I hear, is it higher now? Five. Uh, five million words. I counted them the other day with the, with the stories and everything. That's an enormous Whoa, okay. of, of words, yes. Well, good. And so, and we, you touched on this, Sharon, but uh, so the, has the cool factor, uh, that same cool factor, or is it something new that keeps you both so engaged and prolific in the, in the series? Well, we keep, we keep meeting new people in the, in, in the universe, in our heads. Um, and we keep being able to interact with them. And, and as long as we're discovering new geography and new characters, I think we're both, we're both happy. Um, you know, you know, a story or a series is over when the characters stop talking to you, and that hasn't happened. Yeah, they, I, I think that the part of the course, what what I was, I mentioned to you while we were getting the uh, screens warmed up here was that uh, I was off on a walk this morning and suddenly said, "Oh, I know, I know what," and Sharon was doing the same kind of thing. And when we still have the "Oh, I know what" uh, happening for us. Or better yet, the I didn't know that. Um, when a character tells you something, you're like, really? <laughs> so um, that's that's still happening for us, um, and uh, that's that's a that's a joy. That that's a a cool thing for us. And so, a final question on this cool factor: uh, Is that what drew both of you together to create it in the first place? The the baby <laughs> universe. Ah. Uh... It's a long story. It's a long story. Um, we met in a writing class in college, and I had already been working on stories in my head. I would tell myself stories. Um, and the stories in my head had three recurring characters, um, a woman who was a soldier, a guy who was a spy, and the green people who were aliens. And I was so bad at telling stories that what would happen is the um, two main characters would go along and they would get themselves into a box and the green people being aliens would come along and do something inexplicable, pop them off into another plot line. And then I would continue with that story. So um, when I was explaining this process to Steve, he went, oh, how interesting, tell me more, instead of screaming and running in the opposite direction. <laughs> and we, uh... We, we started um, when we when we did, we had already been writing a few things together accidentally. Sharon and I were both sort of in the opportunity pool, having been um, uh, the opportunity pool being what happened when you were working for people and they laid you off or whatever. And so we've both been in the opportunity pool and Sharon got a job and had been working on a story. And for, for several days, the story stayed in this in the typewriter. This is back in the day of manual typewriters where you roll the paper in and, and get like that. And I went upstairs and it wasn't changing. And finally I gave up and called her and said, Sharon, I think I know where this story goes. Can I write it? And I said, yes, you can. But if I don't like it, I reserve the right to not accept what you've done. And he went, deal. And so... so that that's how we started writing together at all. The, the uh, Leiden uh, universe itself uh, appeared, started appearing one day when I was off running a chess tournament. I, used, I was a professional chess tournament director for a while. And um, 
I came home and Sharon said, I've got a novel here. And I looked at the line and said, no, you don't have a novel. This is a series. And we sat down and did it like that. And that was a thrill too, but we'd already, again, we'd had some of uh, Roger's experience um, that he had talked to me about, about how do you put something together like this? Because then still at that point, people were thinking trilogy, wow. And here we sat down and said, okay, seven books. Right. <laughs> well, great. Uh, without going into any spoilers, and more specifically about uh, the uh, uh, constellation number five, uh, my favorite story in this constellation is Fortune's Favors, as I love the idea of a luck. Uh, beyond that, Martin is both a, a victim and agent of his own fortune, and I thoroughly enjoyed reading his means of adapting to conditions while striving to do the right thing. Um, how did that particular character come to be uh, in this? Uh... I, I looked this up because Fortune's paper was my fault. Um, and I wanted to know <laughs> when I had, because I don't remember, you know, and I wanted to know when I had written it and what novel we were working on at the same time. And we were working on Accepting the Lance, which made no sense because Accepting the Lance doesn't have much to do with the small talents. Um, but... I really, I can't, the end of 2018 and the beginning of 2019 were really bad times for me. So the only thing I actually remember about forming this story is sitting in a hotel room on the edge of the bed and telling Steve the story and said, I wanna write this story because I need to figure out how the locks work. Um, this has basis in the universe because Clan Corval is known for their luck. Not their good luck, not their bad luck, but their luck. Mm -hmm. um, and the small talents had been growing across the series. We have um, psych um, yeah, psychic workers and um, people who can heal you and set fires at a distance and other useful things. Um, and those are large talents. And then we have people who can just you know find things or um, walk into a room and it's more comfortable now, the small talents. And I was really, I was interested in that point at the, um, with the small talents and luck is so scary. Yes. <laughs> it, it's such a scary concept and to be a luck and the lucks are all um, stunned. They're not allowed into the healer's hall. They're, they're sent below for it if they found out at all. Um, so I really wanted to explore what it meant to be such a, I don't want to say slave, but, but so pressed by your talent that you had to try to figure out why am I doing this? Is this my luck or is this, is this me wanting this done? And we had previously had lucks in the, in the series uh, and Dov is one of the yeah. large characters one of the large characters, important characters in the series. And Dov had found himself in Lowport, which is a- In a dive. In, in a dive, dealing with somebody who's, uh, who, whose feature was is that uh, they would, uh, as, a, as a person, they were sort of stuck. They, they would come up to you and say, I'm available, I'm a luck. I can change your luck. I will go with you to the table and I will stand next to you and that's all I'll do. Right. 
and your your luck will be improved and you will give me half of your winnings or whatever the the percentage is agreed and it was a it was a formal a formal arrangement there and uh so sharon had already had this kind of thing as a ladder to to work from and um but we hadn't been able to explore from the character's viewpoint that character's viewpoint which was what she was able to do with um starting into fortune's favor that's yeah. not your microphone it's an excellent I, I really enjoyed that story it was very very well done i i thought it was very exciting that because i i too like one of the things about the random chance of the universe of these things that, you know these events that happen uh and how someone might you know they don't exactly take advantage of it because no, it's, no. it's so dangerous, <laughs> but they do, they are able to steer a little bit. It's, it's like mm -hmm. luge, I guess. <laughs> yeah. hey, lean a little bit. Right. Right. It's all dangerous, but it'll get you there. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so the, I guess you've answered the next question as well about where it came from. So mm -hmm. uh, fascinating stuff. I, I'm a big fan of mysteries and thoroughly enjoyed Shout of Honor. The uh, Yit Strang, uh, I may be mispronouncing that. It's we we say it with a full X, so it would be X Strang. X Strang, the X Strang ambassador of Vipal's position, uh, mm -hmm. which appears to uh, catch a small troop between a rock and a hard place, is only relieved by his friendship with an outsider. Uh, this appears to be something of a theme in your work, as outsiders align to overcome obstacles. Uh, culture clashes, both internal and external, uh, seem to also have a strong presence in your books. Um, is this a natural outgrowth of how you see the cultures you've created interacting on the fringes of their society, or is it a kind of a more deliberate examination of characters and their cultural norms, interactions well, with their cultural norms? Well, it, it's, we, we do deal with people who are on the fringes a lot. And one of the reasons we do is, uh, as with the Lux, uh, things happen to people who are on the fringes uh, people who are doing the same old same old same old and have no connection with the fringe are not as likely to have an adventure and this this is one of the reasons when people say to us ah you know have an adventure and i think well no 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 we've seen adventures thank you uh but the the point here for for Vepo is that uh, and and that story is again, uh, his he was first mentioned in the very first book, Agent Strang Ambassador. Yes, he was, and major change. And his existence was mentioned twenty three books before we got to him. Right. <laughs> uh, he had been actually in a couple in a couple of spots, and what had happened is that. Uh, Again, Sharon had had some um, times and she had started, we had both been interested in Beppo and had tried to work him in in, uh, in some other locations. Out of Honor had started as part of Accepting the Lance. And I had written some of it and then went, no, it doesn't belong in this book. And I gave it to Steve and said, you know, maybe a short story, can you see where it goes? Yeah. Uh, and. Um, what we had been dealing with, of course, is uh, the strain, if you want to talk of, of the societies where the extrang are always the bad guys. There's never anything else but 
they'd been seen never as anything else but the bad guys, except that through the universe over time, uh, one or two have been brought in and another one or two have been brought into the story. So people are saying, hey, you know, these guys aren't, uh, you know, they're not all that bad necessarily. They can right. be exactly that bad. Well, and everybody's the hero of their own piece, right? <laughs> well, well and one, one of the really interesting characters in Shout of Honor is um, the rifle, Ocean, who's um, yeah. someone that nobody expects anything of. I mean, he's a rifle. That's what he does. He picks up his rifle and he shoots it, but he doesn't shoot at. Um, except he likes Melanti plays. Yeah. Um, and for people who are our regular readers, somebody who is interested in a Melanti play means that they're paying attention. Um, it's more, and it, it's, uh, mm, do you remember the Karate Kid, the original yes. movie? Yes. Oh, yeah. And in the original movie, uh, the martial artist was in love with his soap operas. Um, great for, yes, the greatest form of um, human entertainment. Was that the Karate Kid? That was that other thing. Um, Remo Williams. Remo Williams. Oh, yes. You're correct. Yes. It, is. Yeah. it was Remo it Williams. It was. It was Remo Williams. Oh. But <laughs> now, now we're dating ourselves. Oh. Oh, that's, that's an awesome <laughs> reference right there. There's, a, there's a reference not everybody's going to get. <laughs> I love Remo Williams. <laughs> okay. One of our it was one of our go-tos for a long time. So in any case, there there was this this I this whole idea of the of of art, and the rifle was able to uh, to move up, in effect, move into, uh, and he had analog in a couple of other stories where one of the regular quote the regular troop uh, was able to demonstrate that no you know the x-trang have been really missing out because they've been saying you're just a troop you don't you know you do what we tell you to do right. and <clears throat> when given the opportunity uh the character wants to do more and is able to do more and was able to bring important things to the to the story and we had a yes. well uh, that, that really resonated with me as a, a former street cop you know uniform presence and Whenever the investigators show up on the scene, we're supposed to not have opinions on what happened because they're the experienced investigators. But the better ones, they know to ask, you know, yeah. they know to, hey, what, did, I, what were your first impressions when you got here kind of thing? Uh, I, 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 I really that. enjoyed that. So that's kind of I funny guess. that that resonated so much with me and I didn't even think about it. <laughs> <laughs> well, what that's that seems to be what we're able, we've been able to do with a number of our characters and a number of our situations is to to find uh, a point that people can say, oh yes, I know that, I've seen that, or I've, worked, or I've, I've done that, or I've been there. Yeah. Yes. And uh, so the um, uh, there's a lot of, a lot more in that story that ties into other novels and ties into other to other portions of the universe so it is that's one of the reasons actually that it wouldn't fit in the, into the ones the one novel so well because it it deserved either to stand alone right or to be able to spin with all of these and it would have required a 300,000 word book or 400,000 word book right. Yeah. And that, that's interesting you say that, too, because that's that also, for me, harkens back to Zelazny and his, you know, every chapter should be a should be a story, a short mm -hmm. story. 
So that, that, I think you're uh, following along right there in the, in his footsteps on, on that score. That's uh, that's really cool. Um, so do you have, speaking of all these cultures and everything, uh, I'm going to probably mangle one, but uh, the Xtrang, the Leiden, and the humans of Terra, there's a, a number of variations in these uh, cultures. Did you ever have difficulty keeping the vocabulary naming conventions and even how they speak uh, separate and kind of sure? Well, we had help. We had help from our own reading for many, many years. And Sharon and I got together and we, when we got together, uh, times were very strange. And so we started a used bookstore with our duplicates. Ah. Um, now, so we had thousands of books between us and we had enough that we could start a bookstore um, with, our, with our duplicates. Right. But we hadn't read everything um, that each other had read. So that Sharon had, had read um, Lord Peter Whimsey books and I had, and we had some uh, uh, romance books. We had some other other things. And so, if you've ever, um, for romance, when I say romance, people are thinking modern romance. But we're talking historical romances. Mm -hmm. And um, Sharon, I think you wanted to. I thought you had wanted to say something there. No, it, it um, basically happened that what Steve did was he um, introduced me to Georgette Hare, which I completely missed. Um, Georgette Hare has a very distinctive writing style, and it is weirdly, weirdly compatible with science fiction. Um, and I had introduced Steve to Peter Whimsey, which also has the manners and the we just don't do that and those are not our kind of people um, business going on, which is also um, a good a good basis for the leading universe. Yeah, we, we used a lot of the British manner, what we saw as British manners as drawn from these particular these particular books. Uh, Georgette Hare had a real ability to bring somebody into the room and you were like, I know who that character is. There's and a book called There's a book called The Masqueraders, one of my very favorite Georgette Hare books. And the mover in this book is a rascal, an old rascal named who's called the old gentleman. They are his own children call him the old gentleman. <laughs> and he walks into the club with his cane and his wig and his red high heels. And you are like, oh boy, is that a dangerous man? <laughs> And so we were able, we, we had those kind of background in our, that kind of a background in our, in our own reading where we were used to considering the possibilities. And, and then um, there were other people who had explored around the edges. Uh, Roger, for example, with, with the whole Amber thing, trying to have people who were in their own way royalty and their, their language was not simple Terran or simple street language of America, it was, uh, it, it requires some rolling periods from time to time. It requires someone to be very serious and precise. And you know when you're cut because you find out you're bleeding, not because you understood what the words meant exactly. You know, it's that, that kind of a thing. So that, that was sort of a background um, for us. So the Leadens, that culture kind of came out out from there for us. And I don't think we have that much of a difficulty keeping the Leadens and the Terrans uh, 
the loopers and and such separate. I don't think that we that we do. We have had help though because some of our fans have gotten together and they've put together a uh, Leiden Universe wiki. Okay. And it has I, I forget how many pages. It's it's well over a hundred. <laughs> well over a hundred pages of history and et cetera and et cetera uh, in it and. It's not unusual for us while we're writing to go look at the wiki or even to go online to, to one of our Facebook groups and say, hey, does anybody remember what so-and-so's eye color was when we mentioned them and whatever? And this is, this is not original with us. I saw Kevin Hearn doing this on Twitter. He's like, I'm in the middle of writing and I need to know what Fiona's eye color is. A free book. To the first person who tells me that. Uh, uh, David Weber is the same guy. He's he, same thing. He's got the, the Bew Weps. He's got people that are actually spewing the numbers for him for his weapons and that kind of thing. So, um, okay. so it, that kind of uh, answers my next question, which was, do you keep a big tome of, that both of you can examine or carry it around in your head? Uh, honestly, I can see either, but uh, I was hoping that there was some enormous book with life, the universe, and everything. <laughs> really kind of really good. It would be really good. I would kill for an edition of the Leiden Code of Proper Conduct. Um, no, the Leiden Code of Proper Conduct uh, has created a number of stories for us because it is, uh, in theory, the Leidens follow this scrupulously, uh, or at least they know when they're not following it, and so they, they know how much of a mistake they're making. And uh, in Fairly early on in our career, I think we'd only had maybe three or four books out. We had a lawyer write to us. <laughs> we had a lawyer write to us to complain that one of our characters had violated the code. And, and I was I was really excited because I said, here he is. This guy has a copy of the code. How do I get it? Um, <laughs> And, and we wrote to him, and we, but we actually researched it, and we went through and said, oh, no, no, this is what he said, and back here, this is what happened, and you see, he was not violating it. He sent us a very nice apology for having mi misunderstood the, the, the law book, I mean, the, 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 the rules. So people do take the, people have the feeling that we have a lot more of that background in us than we actually do. Right. Um, it's a, it can get um, it can um, get to be a problem sometimes. <laughs> Eric uh, Eric Flint, uh, my friend and, and co-author, he says vague is your friend. <laughs> yes, yes. Do not pin things down. Right. <laughs> there, are, there are people who want timelines. Do not give in to them. <laughs> and we also have people who wish wish us to draw the maps. <laughs> and um, this is this is <clears throat> pardon me. This is one of my my personal. Um, problems with trying to, I, I see any number of writers I know who have faltered, who in fact totally failed because they spent so much time drawing the maps and doing the background and figuring out the economy that they've lost, lost sight of the story. And we try to make sure that the story is moving. The story moves first. And the Leading Universe is big enough um, so Centerport is as big as South Centerport needs to be. I mean, if there's a couple extra streets, so there are. Um, when I wrote the Carousel books, I was working in a real 
main small town and maps were invaluable. I could tell you what street something was on. Um, and that was good, but the Leiden universe is a different, is a different beast. Um, it's, it needs to be squishy. <laughs> well, excellent. So, uh, and uh, many of the stories in, in the uh, Leiden universe constellation uh, have a strong action element, uh, romance or a little of both. Um, does one of you take the lead with regard to writing particular passage or are you, as I suspect, so experienced that it makes little difference at this point? Well, the, old joke, the old joke is that Steve does the space battles and I do the knife fight. Um, because whoops. we both have experience in these areas. In, in these areas, <laughs> yes, absolutely. Um, just what have we got in here? Well, this is a lot more action than it is romance in, in, the, in yeah. this one. Um, and we don't shy away from romance. I mean, romance is a good thing to have. Um, but people have to be willing to stand where they are. Um, and they have to be able to stand for who they are. And that's, that's an important thing. And we try to, we, we try to argue for personal integrity. Um, and the, the romance, is it romance or is it action? Um, or is it yes? <laughs> um, Shout of honor. That, that is, that is not a, that's not really a dichotomy there. No. Um, no. The, the, you have uh, particularly not in, in people who are under stress. Uh, and it may be that afterwards you look at a, you, you may look back or a character may look back and say, boy, that was almost a bad idea. I, you know, I'm, gl I'm glad this happened between us, but it wasn't really what it shouldn't have happened or it was, um, no. Um, the, the action is going on and it feels natural for the characters. And if it feels natural for the characters, uh, I'm, I'm gonna get into philosophy a second here because uh, when, when we're talking about character building, one of the things that we, we use the, uh, the, the, the idea of a God, and that is to say a God acts out of the necessity of his own being. That's we how- are. We are small gods. All writers are small gods. And the character should be writing, should be acting out of the necessity of its own being and not out of the except the, the plot line over here. Right. Which has caused us problems sometimes because we've en ended up writing 50 pages to get tossed out because no, he wasn't following his own character there. Right. And that's not how he would have done it. But uh, when, you, when you go back and look at it, the characters should be working working out of their their own selves and so that's what happened in shout of honor of honor uh Veppel, um without giving too much away Veppel came face to face with somebody he could recognize as a comrade um as uh someone working at his level in a very strange environment and yeah, well uh, he was personally vulnerable too and and yes and so the, those those things all all work together really reasonably in um in that I have to glance down a second. Um, we've written like 103 or 102 or whatever things together, and sometimes I forget what story is where. So let me glance into the. Well, let oh, me oh. glance into the. Uh, okay. uh -oh. <laughs> okay. Yeah, and and the same kind of thing in in the Galaxy Ballroom. Uh, we had people who were tossed into a spot didn't want to be there, 
the, the one person had a lot of reason for being back on Liad when, when, and nope, got tossed into the wrong place, wasn't supposed to be here, had other things to do. I don't want to be here. I don't want, I can't let this go on. Right. And that's, that's, um, so the outcome in that story, right? There's yeah. The character dictating what's going to happen with it. Yeah. Right. When faced with those impossible circumstances, what does the person of character and means do? Yes. Yes. I mean, yeah, that's uh, again without giving anything away. <laughs> um, and um, dark, dark secrets is no romance, but there's a committed partnership in there that right. really works, as weird as it is. Mm -hmm. um, we admit it's weird. We admit, yeah, of course we admit it's weird. Well, that's part of the tension of it. This is that so here we, you know, here we have this two individuals who are seeing the same problem in entirely different ways. Yes. And how is it they're still able to work together? It's, it's uh, really well, definitely because they see the yeah. same problem in entirely different ways. Yep. And their solution yet, you know, satisfies both of them more or less. So, uh, Compromise. I, yeah. <laughs> so that was neat. And so I guess then what what I should have been uh, couched the question as is that uh, is there a, a particular manner in which you know, like certain characters that you each write. Uh, because you have a better grasp of what they're about or that kind of thing? Yeah, I leave the teenagers to Steve. <laughs> this, this, is, this is, I was a quote-unquote children's librarian at the uh, Oakland Public Library here in Maine. And um, I sort of was, I was only there for a year and a half or two years, whatever. And it was, but at the same time, when we started working with um, Jethri, um, when he was a, a youngster, uh, Sharon began that. It's my and... fault again. I wrote Balance of Trade, but then I was not going to do any more Jethri books. No, she well, she wrote she wrote the, the short story that was Balance of Trade, and then we that got that became uh, that was expanded, and then when it came around to um, Theo. Um, Theo, we wrote, I was writing a week at a time um, for. Uh, Sam's got very weird. We, um, um, our publisher, the time. former publisher um, folded very quickly, leaving us with no money. Um, <laughs> so in order to make money, we decided to write a, write a novel, um, a chapter a week and give it away on the internet. And that's how we got through the main winter and um, we wrote fledgling and then we wrote saltation that way. Um, and, and so, and Sharon was working at the college most um, so that we would have health insurance. And, and, writing, um, and writing Dwayne Fay, yes. And she was, she was working on one, another set of books. And then I was doing this week by week by week, putting a chapter at least a week up. And um, again, it was working with the, the teenager, working with the young person. And um, so, I tend to end up with that that side, but it, it's I tend to end end up with pilots, but that's you know it, it's not a uh, it's not a given. And there have been times that Sharon has gotten gotten up and back from the days of the typewriter or the days we were stuck with one computer, that Sharon Sharon has gotten up, gone to work, and I sat down where she was and continued the story right from there. Wow. So um yeah so uh moving on from there to still kind of tell us about the characters uh, your characters often have their origins and 
in harsh conditions and seem quite capable of violence in defense of themselves or their ideals. Uh, that in mind, which character or characters from a Leiden verse constellation would you most uh, want to meet? The Serena. cat. Serena. <laughs> and why? And why? What a competent person. Um, and not only competent and world-wise, um, she doesn't think everybody's a good person. Um, but is able to recognize goodness in people and to work with them. And I think maybe Kana um, hmm. from, from Dead Man Dream, because Kana is a, um, uh, a, strange, a strange person to me. I've seen people that devoted, and it's a story about devotion in a lot of ways. And I've seen people who, who've been that devoted to a person or to a thing. Uh, and again, you, we're talking about earlier that there's growth going on in the universe, that these, these people, <clears throat> they've been put in a bad situation and they're going to grow beyond it or they're going to fold in on themselves and then they're just going to be a shell the rest of their lives. They've got to do something. And um, uh, so in a way, Kana drove the story for me as I was working with the other characters. Kana was, was get this, get Kana right, and the rest of the story will flow properly. And that was the hard, that was, um, it was a hard story. It was a hard story. And, and he faced, Kana actually faced a hard decision because he had to stop being as devoted in order to allow someone else to grow. Um, Neat. So uh, building on that, which character would you want to avoid like the plague and why? <laughs> oh dear, I can't remember his name. Um. <laughs> <clears throat> well, um, I'm, I'm going to forget her. I'm going to forget her name, um, but uh, in Beppel's uh, uh, um, adversary. No, she was scary. That was a scary woman. Yeah, the Leiden adversary? Yeah. The Leiden yeah, yeah, yes. recruiter. Yep. <laughs> yes. No, no, I would not want to be anywhere well, in any way, shape, or form near that, that person. No, she was big. I'm also not very fond of the um, big guy in um, Dark Secrets. I mean, talk, he was kind of a lunatic. Um, and um, I'd like to put space in between us, um, preferably a galaxy. Um, <laughs> For me, it was the uh, uh, the winner in luck. Uh, in, <laughs> okay. I yes, thought yes, they, yes. Uh, Martin's winner. Yes. Um, it was, uh, yeah, you don't want to meet that guy. <laughs> and so, uh, building on that again, uh, so w within the cultures, uh, is there are there any you'd want to live in or visit with? Uh, You know, we've been living in the Leiden universe for 40 years. <laughs> we, we, we figured we did the, we were doing some of the math. Um, uh, it, it turns out that we had actually written in another story or two more than we had realized inside the, inside the universe when we, uh, we have, how many story, how many stories in the universe, 50? 
70. By the time you add the novels in with the short uh, stories with the with the short stories. Well, Bain has collected 63. Wow. Through the, the, the works through the constellations. Okay, so there, and there's, then there's 24 novels. And yep. then six more stories that haven't been collected yet. <laughs> so um, you guys, yeah. you guys are just you're slowing down. I mean, we are, we are. <laughs> we're goofing off. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we have uh, just on that note, we have two novels in progress right now. And then we've got um, some short stories that are and, and other stories sort of sitting around. But well, I want to get to that. You know, I need to get to that. Um, and so, yeah. So just amongst those cultures, it's the, the Leiden would be you're just kind of familiar with them. And no, I wouldn't want to live on Leiden. My God, I'd be, you know, killed in a duel before I even left the spaceport. Um, I, um, Karen would probably be easiest because there's it, it's closer to what we have presently as a as a culture here in the U.S. Um, but even that takes some some tricky dancing. But I, I'd say you know, Karen just for ease of being able to live. Um. Yeah, and um, again, the stories that are the stories that are in in the constellation are outgrowths of things that we've dealt with before. And so someone who is fresh to the constellation who hasn't seen anything else, if I say, gee, this one or that one, I'm, I'm kind of um, uh, actually sure bleak. Um, well, yeah, sure we, bleak. We, did not, we did not grow up um, in good conditions. Um, right. so sure bleak so, is also like home. Right, and that's the, that's the new scout uh, or the clan base that's the new clan base. They got thrown off of Liad and they had to go um, set up base somewhere. So they went back to Miri's home, home world. Right. Um, and sure bleak because it has some elements of Terran and it has some elements of the Liadin and it has some elements and they're that trying are trying to They're trying to balance it. Work it um, out, yeah. And there are some, some elements, um, which is why a couple of the stories in the book are from Happen on Sure Bleak. Right. Uh, the um, the gate um, the gate that locks the tree mm -hmm. actually shows a lot of that. You have uh, people who from all <clears throat> over, yeah. You have people from all over, and you have people who are uh, trying to um, help each other survive again in very strange conditions, and that seems to us, I guess, to be what we expect from people. Uh, what we would expect from people is people say, "Up, oh, you got that problem." Oh, I got a spare Mitzwiller ball over here. Do you need it? I'm right. like that. Neat. The um, uh, and amongst the aliens to, to talk about the the actual non-humanoid aliens uh, tree and that kind of thing. What what uh, culture or uh, just to kind of observe? Would you like to see? I would like to meet the tree. I would like to meet the tree. Um, not that I think it would talk to me, but it, you know. It would be interesting. The turtles, wow, looming and booming. Yes. <laughs> the, the the turtles are scary in their way because they're still. Uh, the tree has been dealing with humans for longer than the turtles have, and the tree has some understanding of 
um, those kinds of necessities where the turtles, they're, they're still pretty, um, pretty fresh to the idea of human. And uh, fresh, for, fresh for turtles, after all, a very long life. Um, and not all the turtles travel, only, only a very few travel. So they're, they're insular. Um, in, to have a human just, um, we, we wrote a story about this, to have a human just show up in their midst is extremely upsetting. My God, what is it? It's so soft. Um, what are we supposed to do with it? Um, it makes noise. Um, it, it's a, it's a life-changing panicky event to um, when they think they know how things are. Yeah. Neat. All right. Uh, so the penultimate question, what aside from its considerable raw entertainment value, do you hope readers will carry with them all long after reading the stories or a particular story in uh, Leiden Use Universe Constellation Volume 5? <laughs> people this is an aside people always tell us that they finish often tell us many people surprisingly surprising numbers of people tell us that when they've finished reading one of our stories or one of our novels they feel better they feel more helpful they feel that people aren't as bad as we sometimes think people are um so i would hope that that carries through with these stories yeah that that's uh, it, it it's hard to want um, to want more than that. Uh, for us, we have another problem when people say, "I just finished your book," and or your stories, and that is that they said, "So I started over," and uh, because they want so much sometimes to not have to deal with things that they're going through, and we've been uh, we've had people tell us, you know, I, I was sick and in the hospital and thought I was dying, and I got. I had your books in hand and they got me through, which is kind of a scary thing to have somebody tell you. Um, it's not why we wrote the books, uh, but that people become so involved. Uh, and we've had people say, you know, I'm waiting for the next one. I'm 87 years old. Wow. <laughs> and um, so, you know, no pressure. Um, <laughs> Right. So if people take that kind of joy and, and, and away from it, not everybody will. Some people say, oh, that's neat. And that's neat. That's it, neat is okay, too. Yeah. Um, ultimately, writers, of course, as you of course know, ultimately, writers write for themselves. Um, so we would hope to give some satisfaction because it means we've done a good job. Great, excellent. So uh, last question, and uh, what conventions can your fans hope to catch up with you at? And uh, what other work do you have in the pipeline for your fans? Well, we're <clears throat> members of Chai Kani. So we're, we're intending to go to the World Bank. And um, next week I'm going to be participating in, virtually I will, I will be participating in um, BossCon. Okay. Uh, we'll be doing that from this very same screen uh, but we do we do hope to get to ChaiCon. We've been uh, we both do have some um, various um, medical issues, and so we've not been charging off to every convention across the, the country that we would like to. We missed I missed Discon. I say I missed it because 
I'd been to the previous discon and had intended to go back to the site of the crime, as it were. <laughs> and um, I, I had kind of been looking forward to more this year, but we're trying to be reasonable and cautious. And so that's that's what we have for right now. Chicon is we're hopeful and we're, we've got memberships and we've got attending memberships. So we do hope to get there. Okay. And then you had two, you said you had two novels in the works and a bunch of short stories that are being tooled around with. Well, let's we have, a, we have a novel coming out in May. Okay. And that's called Fair Trade. And that's okay. a Jeffrey book. Um, and I am working on a novel called Savage Right, which is set on Tensori Light. And Steve is working on another Jethro book. Uh, the follow, the follow on Jethro book, and that is um, Trade Lane. And uh, I, I will tell you, we don't always name our, our books this far ahead. Both uh, sometimes we're three quarters of the way through before a title actually sticks. Necessity's Child was George until I turned it in and Tony threatened to publish it as George. <laughs> and we also and we also had a book that, that we called Valcon and Miri on Mars. Right. The That's the key of change. <laughs> well, excellent. So it looks like we have much to look forward to with you. And hopefully I'll, I'll uh, have the opportunity to interview you for that uh, next trade uh, book. That would be great. Out. So thank you very much. This is, once again, this has been Sharon Lee and Steve Miller. Uh, with the Bain Free Radio Hour talking about the Leiden Universe Constellation, Volume 5. Hope you enjoyed it. Bye. And now another installment of John Ringo's Live Free or Die. This is really awesome, Tyler said. Even if it is a fiddly bit, Nathan asked. The tube was three meters in diameter with walls of iron that reflected the light from the spacesuits. Tyler had just had to check out the first missile tube since it had been an unimaginable pain in the ass to build. The basic concept was simple a zigzagged tube that ran from the missile magazine, which was still being constructed, to the exterior of the battle station, put in grav plates to move the missiles. Since the missiles were pretty solid state and, with the exception of the capacitors, didn't tend to explode if they were hit, even if there was a major hit on a full tube, all the missiles were going to do was seal the tube, shift to another, and you were rocking again. There were issues. To make sure that an enemy couldn't get a hostile weapon in, the tubes needed blast doors. Just drilling the tubes was a pain. Putting in the blast doors had started to look like a deal killer. But by building some special mirrors and bots, they'd managed to basically cut out a chunk of the wall on either side of the tube. By cutting away some more, they ended up with two sliding doors that overlapped and, when closed, extended 15 meters into the wall of the station. They were operated by grav plates, 
which had to be supplied with power and controls, and the base of the doors and the plate they rested on had to be perfectly smooth and... fiddly bits. The missile magazine was going to take a while. Not only was it planned with more cubic capacity than the initial living quarters, which meant a bigger plug to pull, it had to have systems to move the missiles into the tubes. Fast. More fiddly bits. Troy was eventually planned to have five magazines, each capable of holding 200,000 missiles and 48 launch tubes running off of each. The missile complex was only a small portion of Zone 1. There were five planned zones. Each zone would be capable of independent operation. It would combine a purely military side, missile magazines, laser tracks, barracks, shuttle and eventually ship bays, repair areas, headquarters, supplies for thousands, support sections, air, water, and especially a tremendously large fuel storage area. There would also be a smaller civilian area that would house the dependents of the military personnel as well as civilian support staff and a general support area that was designed to grow organically just like a small town supporting a military base. Five was going to take a while, like a couple hundred years of fiddly bits. For now, they had one missile tube and one laser tube. But the Sapple had started small, too. It now had 28 million square yards of VLA mirrors capable of generating 71 petawatts of power. Doing so, including BDA, VSA, and VDA production, had used up about half the trash portion of the near-Earth asteroids. The Sapple division had been busy beavers, and every year they just about doubled production while cutting costs. And to make matters better, the good part of the asteroids paid for the production. You getting the new laser mirrors? Tyler asked. Yeah, Nathan calmed. Capable of handling an exawatt? An exawatt, Tyler. The whole VLA doesn't put out an exawatt. I'm tired of never being able to concentrate enough power. Tyler said, running the Waldo off the suit over the seal on a blast door. And it will be capable of it eventually. Of course, we'll need several thousand VDAs by then. What does UNG stand for? Nathan asked. What? Tyler asked, continuing on. What does UNG stand for? Nathan said. Very scary array, very dangerous array. What does UNG stand for? Nothing, Tyler said. The first time we activated it, I got an actual button installed to fire it. And I went, uh, 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 just before I pushed the button. Everybody who had anything to do with it pretty much went, uh, the first time they thought about it. I think the cover acronym is Unified Nuclear Grappler or something. But it really just means, uh, uh, is right, Nathan said. Cooling them is going to be a bitch. That is the other reason you're getting great big helium tanks, Tyler said. Speaking of which, when are you digging the air and water tanks? Next month we're starting on the water tank, 
Nathan said. The main one, that is. I think it's time for us to have a little... accident, Tyler said. I don't like accidents with stuff like that, Nathan pointed out. People tend to, and I don't want to exaggerate this, vanish in a puff of volatiles. Not that kind of accident, Tyler said. Just a little bobble with a VDA when you're digging out the plug. I understand you had a little bobble with digging out the water tank, Admiral de Graff said. He had been in his position for three years and was just about to retire. But he wanted to stay around to see Troy activated. When you're throwing around that much power, Tyler said, sometimes these things happen. A very suspicious accident, Admiral de Graff said. A hollowed-out point at the notional top of the water tank that looks, and I don't want to sound paranoid about this, suspiciously like a pool, a very big pool, with what looks a bit like a water park with a little work, melted-out water runs on the walls. I'm not sure how it happened, Tyler said. Just a bit of a bobble with a VDA. The rest I ascribe to chaos theory. In an infinite universe, on the other hand, a pool will be a real MWR benefit to the crew. People may just be born, raised, live, and die on Troy, Admiral. Surely they deserve something other than endless walls of iron and steel. And do you expect us to pay for a pool, Mr. Vernon? Of course. Tyler said. Part of the contract specifications was a water testing area with earth normal gravity, air, and appropriate heating and cooling. You now have one. Admiral de Graff consulted the appropriate files and grunted. Hmm, the Admiral said. The water testing area is listed as $60,000, Mr. Vernon. You're going to sell us a 60-acre water park for $60,000? with earth-normal air, gravity, heating, and cooling. There are various cost overruns so far, Admiral, Tyler said, smiling, most of which we've eaten, if for no other reason than we're getting nearly as much for the materials we're mining as we are for Troy. As long as we don't have to pay for all the fiddly bits like the quarters and bays, I'm good. And I rather like the look of the pool, don't you? We call it Xanadu. Xanadu, the admiral said, then nodded. So you think of yourself as Kublai Khan? I understand he was below normal height as well, Tyler said, grinning and cutting the connection. Sir, Argus said over Tyler's calm. The Gorku manager, Z. Timar, has arrived aboard the Galactic Miner. He requests a meeting. Subject? Tyler asked. Having an AI was better than any personal assistant. Among other things, he didn't have to turn down proposals of marriage. He'd switched to males after the first two female PAs and found that didn't help either. It also meant he could stay aboard ship. He'd more or less permanently installed himself in the monkey business. Since the business was inside the Troy most of the time, it was also a damned secure place to work. It requests that the purpose remain proprietary. Interesting, Tyler said. 
Do we know anything about Z Tamar? It is listed as a special assistant to the assistant vice president of entertainment and design management. Effectively, it is in charge of planning corporate parties and choosing which art to put on which walls. Could that be classed as sort of a corporate cultural affairs attaché? Tyler asked. Yes, sir. Send a shuttle, Tyler said. In fact, send the Starfire. Z. Tamar was so plain a glutton, it could have been chosen for an encyclopedia illustration, standard glutton, one each. The harness was straight corporate drone. Skin tone was absolute middle. Ditto red on the eyes. Nose was a standard glod, short-nosed. Tyler had never met a more obvious spy. The room is secure, Tyler said. I have it swept weekly, and there are, as I'm sure you notice, large and bored miners in the hallways that seem to have little to do. Sir, Tamar said, setting a data crystal on the table. A personal message from Nizgul Gorku. Tyler set it in a player, and a hologram of Gorku sprung up. Hello, friend, Gorku said. With Horvath control of the E-Iridani system and the support they are receiving from the Rangora, hypercom communication may no longer be secure. Thus, we're going to continue to buy materials, but production is slowing. The People's Council has firmly rejected further military boondoggles and also have rejected every draft bill. So even if we build more ships, we can't crew them. They also refuse to yield on reductions of basic social spending, and taxes are already killing us. Thus, affording more ships is questionable. The production going to ships has impacted entertainment goods and services. The benefactors are deadlocked, and the peace movement is gaining strength. Federal intelligence has solid evidence that it is heavily backed by the Rangora, but nobody wants to see it. The bottom line is that war is coming, and we will not be prepared. With luck, we will prevail. I have seen little luck for my people of late. I am not optimistic. I have prevailed upon certain people, I will not name them, to give certain releases. This good glutton carries a shipment of not only updates for Granatica, of the newest Gorku military and civilian technologies, but also releases. This effectively gives Earth the rights to produce any system of glutton design, including military systems. There are also 117 blank AIs, the most I could sneak out. All of the rights and releases are authorized, but it would be better for everyone involved if you could keep them somewhat secret. If, when, war breaks out between ourselves and the Rangora, that will be less important. In the meantime, please try to keep it quiet. It will be some time before you can produce the material, much less assimilate it. But you have it now. All legal, but 
It would be better if no one found out. The last item is the most troubling for your system. Certain of my ships have been somewhat upgraded in the sensor department. Also, something I would prefer you keep quiet. But the Galactic Miner is one. When it last passed through the E. Iridani system, they detected traces of large warships passing through the system. Since they did not go to Seoul, they must have gone to Horvath. The traces indicated older-class Rangora Devastator dreadnoughts. The Rangora produced 42. At least 30 have been mothballed, or were. I'm trying to get information on whether they are still in retirement and what the status on the other 12 are. The Devastators have 200 terawatt main lasers and 1,000 gravity shields. They will shrug off your petawatt lasers. I hope you have upgraded. They also may or may not have the Rangora capital missiles. It depends on what technology the Rangora have shared with the Horvath. If so, they are fast and stealthy, and the Devastators each carry 200. If they reach your system, I hope you have something that can stop them. Troy alone will not be enough. May peace be with us all, but I fear it will not. Good luck, my friend. Anything additional? Tyler asked, pulling out the crystal. He walked over to his desk, took out a small hammer, and crushed the Atacirc. No, sir, Tamar said. By the time we returned through the system, the traces were gone. There is a Horvath battlecruiser on station, but... It didn't even hail us. How long do you think we can keep getting shipments through? Tyler asked. The estimate is that the Horvath will not engage Glatun ships absent a declaration of war with the Rangora, Tamar said. But if we go to war with the Rangora, it can be assumed the Horvath will see us as an enemy. Glatun could trash the entire Horvath system in a day, Tyler said. But we would not do so, Tamar said. The benefactors would never approve a simple annihilation raid. The Horvath are a poor, weak, oppressed polity that need comfort and care to bring them to a civilized condition? Tyler asked. Yes, sir. And Earth? Is a militaristic system bent on regional control, Tamar said. Its most notable personages are all atavistic barbarians. Probably it would be better under Horvath control. Is that a consensus? Tyler asked. No, Tamar said. But the consensus of those who see the Horvath as poor and oppressed. Those factions would never have allowed this technology transfer. Fortunately, they do not control such things. We'd better get the transfer finished then, Tyler said. I'll personally carry the data to the wolf system. Granatica can probably use it better than anyone in Seoul, and it will be more secure there. We'll hold the AIs on Troy. We needed one anyway. Yes, sir. That was another installment in John Ringo's Live Free or Die, and that's it for the podcast. Thanks, as always, to Audible.com and podcast theme composer Ruth Judkowitz. 
Praise, thanks, and gratitude to Sharon Lee and Steve Miller for sitting down with Griffin Barber today. And good night, Tony Daniel, wherever you are. This is David F. Shirod coming to you from a soundproof bunker somewhere deep in the heart of Texas. Join us here next week at the hammering heart of science fiction and fantasy and keep reaching for the stars.